This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Okay, it's five past, so I think we can get going. If anyone joins us, they will have to catch us on the way um, to the promised land. So anyway, the presentation we have um, today is a survey of issues in consumer credit risk modeling from regulatory capital to economic value. So we've got three presenters who will be educating us in this session. Their names are Musa Mal Malwandla. Uh, Mercy Marimo and Tabi Sotwala. So Musa Malwandla is a managing director at Differential Capital, and that's a recently formed AI-driven hedge fund where he heads up the research function. Prior to this, he was a top-rated sell-side analyst covering the insurance sector. He also spent five years developing credit risk models for a number of banks. He holds a BSc honors in actuarial science from VITS, a master's of commerce and statistics from UCT, and is currently completing two PhDs at the same time, one in finance and another in development economics. He's been an academic conducting research in the field of consumer credit risk for more than five years and has given seminars on, the, on topics at conferences at uni and universities locally and internationally. Then we have Mercy Marimo who works at ABSA within Model Risk's Center of Excellence. She oversees all aspects of credit impairment modeling for ABSA retail portfolios and its joint ventures. She holds a BSc Honors in Mathematical Statistics from VITS, a Master's in Statistics and Actuarial Science from VITS, and is and a Master's of Commerce in Development Finance. She's a seasoned credit risk thought leader, having published several academic articles in reputable journals. She's also presented at several academic industry and international forums in the, in the past decade. And finally, we have Tabiso Twala, who is an AI enthusiast and a financial services professional who also works at ABSA in the credit risk modeling space which is housed within the Model Risk Center of Excellence. He manages the development of decision-type models and holds a BSc Honors in Actuarial Science, a high diploma in Computer Science, and is currently busy with an MSc in Computer Science. So, essentially, they are very qualified to be talking about this today. So, um, I've had the privilege of seeing their presentation, and I promise you it will be very engaging. It's very um, content-rich, and a lot of, I hope you'll have a lot of questions out of what they're going to present today. So, please join me in welcoming our first presenter of the three of them to the stage. Okay, uh, thanks, thanks, Kuzai, and hi, hi, everyone. So I'll be speaking uh, about the first piece here, which is basically providing a survey of the consumer credit risk landscape, just what, what the key issues are as we see them. Um, and then uh, Mercy, uh, my colleague, will be talking about some of the solutions to the problems that we'll identify. And then Tabiso will talk on the wider topics in the, in the field beyond the, the, the run-of-the-mill credit risk that, that I'll mainly cover. Now, um, the reason why we wanted to do this presentation is that we have, as Kudzai said, been doing research in this area for a number of years. And in our sense, the, the, the talk at the moment doesn't, uh, around uh, the banking profession is still at a very high level and there isn't an in-depth understanding of what the technical issues are and how actuaries can actually be involved in solving these issues. Right, so I'll just jump in. Most of the stuff will be high, some of the stuff will be high level, but there'll be a, a few equations, so open your mind for a bit. Um, so high level, this is credit risk in a nutshell, right? You have, uh, you are concerned with ultimately modeling uh, credit losses. 
those are usually represented in a three-factor model, probability of default, exposure given, uh, given default, and loss given default. Now, each of these are random com components in their own rights. Think of them as statisticians, uh, random, ram random components. Um, now, what we are ultimately co concerned with is estimate of thinking about the loss distribution, right? So what I've shown here is the portfolio loss distribution. Now, those who work in IFRS in impairments are concerned with estimating expected credit losses, basically that first green line, the, the first uh, average there. Then uh, what, what uh, the guys who are concerned with capital are, are, are mainly interested in is modeling the distance between some tail of the distribution, which could be VAR or some other quantile, uh, and the distance between that and some measure of expected loss. Now, there's usually a difference between these two. The, the way uh, expected losses are calculated under Basel versus IFRS 9, the differences are technical. So, for example, IFRS 9 sometimes requires people to calculate losses over an entire lifetime. So, for example, for, all, for the loans that you have on your book, you need to think about all of the, so for, for a mortgage, for example, think about over the next 20 years, what are the loss scenarios that might happen and obviously reserve for them. Whereas Basel is mainly concerned with a 12-month loss horizon. That's basically how, how it works um, at, a, at a high level. Now, what I'll touch on first is credit scoring, which is very basic. Uh, what we are interested in here is modeling probability of default. Um, and then I just have a stylized example here. So you would be trying to uh, fit some model uh, for probability of default. And the idea is that uh, that should match your observed default rates. Now, the, the, the point here is that, one, you need to make sure that your model fits, obviously. But the other part is that you also are primarily concerned with the spread of the, of the, of the model. So it wouldn't help to have two points here that are very close to, uh, to each other as your model points. You need to have risk differentiation because that helps you when you score and when you price. So you can think about, you think about the, the problem of anti-selection in insurance is the same concept here. The more granular a scorecard is, the more you can uh, differentiate uh, with risk. And obviously the inputs here are things like age, delinquency, anything, anything that pertains to the account or the consumer can, can input into this model. Um, now, the main techniques, quickly, uh, typically it's logistic regression and decision trees. Logistic regression is your run-of-the-mill linear kind of model. Now, um, the key complications with this model is that there isn't enough focus on modeling uh, with time-varying covariates. What that means is the framework, if you think about how logistic regression works, it's usually customer-level information, and you're not thinking about inputting things like GDP, interest rates at the moment. All of those actually do have an influence on probability of default, as, as you can see here. So this, was, this is probability of, this is observed default rates over time, and obviously in a peak, the, those, those increase, and in a, that's in a downturn, you would have higher, and so on. That's obvious, uh, but the problem is when you look at the models that are used today, a lot of them don't actually have macroeconomic variables in them. Now, the problem is a problem of the techniques that are used. They don't have the, 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 the flexibility to allow for this. So that's one of the problems. And this is actually a material problem because uh, there's a paper published as early as 1992 that showed because of how long it takes to build a model, usually you have to collect uh, data over a number of, of years, and then you have to wait for that data to, for the accounts to perform over, let's say, tw uh, 24 months. That means if you choose to build a model at that point, by the time you implement it, you might be at the peak. 
and the model is no longer applicable. So that's why actually modeling teams in, in retail banks find themselves having to continually refine models over and over again, just simply because they're not accounting for enough data. Then the other part is that the logistic regression and decision trees have a finite modeling lifetime. So you're you are modeling defaults over, the, over a fixed horizon, not over variable horizons, and, and that's actually important when we speak about uh, uh, IFRS 9, which I'll do in a moment. Um, this is just an example of a decision tree that would be used in, in retail credits. Obviously, you segment your population into groups, and the idea is that you would apply some algorithm that helps you bin. So here we start with a the population, then we make it, we split the population into two buckets according to utilization, and then you split further and further until you have fine risk buckets that have differentiation in PD. So one is, has a PD of 1.5%, whereas another has 12%. So that's actually what you're trying to do in modeling. Now, I'll then quickly go to impairment provisions. This is basically uh, the framework for how to model uh, the expected losses on a credit portfolio for the purpose of preparing financial accounts, right? So here, it would be what goes into your, financial, your, your annual, annual reports or internal man management accounts. Now, the key things here is that with, with IFRS 9, which is the accounting standard that pervades this at the moment, it came in 2018, uh, you have to segment uh, accounts into three stages. Stage one are accounts that are still okay. So you think about a, a, an account that was booked and, and the credit profile of the consumer hasn't changed since, so it's still of the same level of risk. Stage two consists of accounts that have deteriorated in risk. They are no longer, so, so it might be somebody lost their job. That person has not defaulted yet, but they are now far, far riskier than before. And then stage three are people who are in default. Now, what you then do is for stage one, you want to model losses over a one-year horizon, whereas stage two and three, you are now concerned with a full horizon of, of, uh, of modeling. Um, and in fact, this is actually very similar to IFRS 17 uh, for, for, for those who work in, in insurance because uh, the concept of significant deterioration is very similar to, to onerousness in, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the IFRS 17 standard. Okay, cool. So I'll then go to capital requirements, which is where I focus most of my uh, academic research. Now, the, the point of uh, capital reserving or setting capital requirements is, as I said before, you're interested in working out the tail of the distribution. So that's your expected loss. It's simple PDEAD, LGD. Now, the unexpected loss, which is what you're ultimately interested in calculating, is the distance between some percentile of the distribution, which is that first part, and your expected loss. That's, that's basically what you're trying to do. Now, this is governed by the Basel Accord at the moment, the Basel 2 and, and, and 3. Uh, are what pervade how, how you calculate uh, this. Now, what I'll do over the next few slides is actually then go into a process of explaining how that derivation of the Basel Accord works. The reason for that is that in, uh, in working and talking to people who work in the, in the, in the industry, there isn't an, an understanding of some of the assumptions that go into the calculation of capital and the formulas that are prescribed under Basel. And the, pro the problem there is that Therefore, no one tests these assumptions when they set up uh, economic capital, which is under pillar two. So that's purely why I, I, I'll go through the, the, the math that you're about to see. So the point here, uh, I forgot to mention one more thing here. So under Basel, you are basically concerned mainly with estimating probability of default and the distribution around it. You, you, the, the standard mainly assumes that EAD and LGD are constant, are not random variables, they are constant and known. So the loss is actually any uncertainty and therefore any capital is mainly held against 
uncertainties that arise from the probability of default, the portfolio default rate. So therefore, I want to then go through the derivation of how that distribution is, 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 is done. Now, we're given basically a portfolio of N loans. Now, each loan in the portfolio basically has a default indicator, which I represent as DI. That's a Bernoulli random variable. The parameter for that Bernoulli is P of, of E, E being a systemic risk factor. So we assume that everyone has a, a particular default rate, but that default rate is uh, influenced by a single risk, that could be GDP, interest rates, or some other risk factor that influences that. Um, now, what we are then interested in is the portfolio default rate, which is basically the average over all of those DIs, right? That's basic, basic uh, statistics. Now, what the assumptions, in order to get to the loss distribution, a few assumptions are made, right? The first one is that we have to assume that um, um, all accounts are homogenous in individual risk. In other words, all, if, for an account I, all of them have basically, we, I is irrelevant, all of them basically have the same risk characteristic once we know what E is. Now that allows us to basically obtain a compound binomial because once you have in, in identically uh, distributed Bernoulli random variable for, from a uh, Bernoulli distribution, but the problem here is that we don't know what the E is, right? Because it's conditioned on some systemic risk variable that, that is unknown. That then produces a compound binomial. This is basically the law of total, total probability is that if we don't know, uh, if we know E, then it has to be a binomial. But because you don't know E, we have to integrate over that binomial. It's just straightforward. Um, then the next assumption, which is, I think, the more uh, deadly assumptions that, that are made in this derivation, is that it is assumed that um, the portfolio is infinitely large. The reason you do that is because this thing is very messy to work with. You can't compute anything from it, especially for a large loan portfolio. So they have to make this assumption. Once you make it by the law of large numbers, you then get P converging to a single point. That point is still unknown because we don't know what E is, right? Then what we then do next is then make one final assumption that is E has some distribution. In this instance, that distribution is normally distributed, is, is the normal distribution with some factor sigma. That's the measure of your systemic, how wide or volatile your system or how much uncertainty exists in the system. With all of that hand-weaving, you then uh, find a, a single distribution, which is what, what is called the Vesicek distribution, uh, which is used in Basel. So then if you take that distribution, you can use it to calculate the VAR, which is basically the inverse of that distribution function, which is basically that. That's your PD. Now, basically, we're, we're taking a percentile of that uh, PD. Then, we are, because we, we have said that EAD and LDD are constant, we just simply multiply out because they, they don't matter their, their constant variables. That then produces this famous formula for, for Basel, where rho here is basically these two are those... Um, in the previous slide, that's the measure of your systemic risk. That's basically the, the Basel framework. Now, this derivation here is not my own. It's basically how the Basel framework, what I've simply done here is adopted it to a retail portfolio. The original derivation is only for corporates, but it's the same exact steps that are, that are followed in the derivation. Now, when this, this uh, is implemented in real life, banks calculate their own PDE, AD, LGD, but Basel gives them the raw parameter. The reason it does that is because it's presumed that banks are not sophisticated enough to calculate their own raw. And that's because when these standards were initially set up, they weren't so sophisticated yet simple enough models to do that, right? Now then brings to uh, what we call the seven deadly assumptions. This is basically 
taking all of the assumptions that are made throughout the derivation of the Basel and implementation of the Basel framework, and we are then just testing whether they make sense, right? So the first one is that your portfolio is infinitely large. That clearly is, is, uh, is problematic. I'll touch on that in, in a moment. The other one is that the portfolio is homogenous. That's that first assumption we made. Now, how banks go around this is they simply uh, re, uh, segment their portfolio into very, very small buckets, and each one then is homogenous. But the problem now is once you have segmented, you still now need a, a way of aggregating a, a across segments. Quantiles are not additives, so you can't add. You can't simply calculate the capital for each and add. It doesn't make sense. Um, the other ones are that EAD is, is constant and LGD is constant, as, as we discussed. Um, the other critical ones that I'll, I'll mention is that it is assumed that the, the, the systemic risk factor, actually that E follows a cycle, right? And Mercy will touch on that in, in a moment. The reason why that's critical is that when, you up, when the, the capital is applied, it's applied on a through-the-cycle basis, that, and the problem with that is if there is no cycle to the E, your capital can easily be wrong. And then the final one is that that raw parameter that Basel gives you, it is assumed that that's right. And from our research, in fact, the research of many other people, it's actually often wrong, right? So how do we solve that? And that's what Mercy will touch on. Um, then the final slide from my side is just to quickly illustrate how deadly these assumptions are. Um, now, what we've, we've shown here is uh, four, four cases, right? So the first one, uh, I, I would like to direct the one on the bottom right. What that is, is the Vasicek distribution as derived under following those steps that I, I just, and that's basically the, the Vasicek distribution from Basel. And the, the bar graph there is actual empirical loss rates from a portfolio. And you see, for a large portfolio, that's a portfolio of 25,000 loans. It kind of, they kind of are equivalent, right? Now, as you, you, the portfolio becomes smaller and smaller, that assumption falls apart, right? So that means when you have a small portfolio, a portfolio, say, 100 loans, in fact, even 500, this is actually uh, completely useless, right? So in fact, if you look at the extreme here, under, for a hundred loan, under the VESI check, you would you'd be assuming that uh, capital is calculated at 5% probability of default. That's your, 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 your uh, percentile. But clearly, losses can easily be double that based on this, this distribution. So this is a dangerous assumption. And by the way, while this suggests that by, by the time you reach 25,000 loans, you are fine, it's actually not the case because it depends on what the... the the volatility, the, the characteristics of your portfolio look like. So for example, we know that the variance of a Bernoulli distribution is P into one minus P. Now the larger that variance, the more likely that this will not actually hold even at 25%. So the lower your, your probability of defaults on a portfolio, the less applicable the VESI check will be. So it's not just a numbers game, it's a fundamentals game. So that's, that's also, uh, Mercy will then try and tackle some of the, the problems I raised here. Thank you, Kuzai. Thank you, Musa. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so Musa has raised um, the issues or the shortcomings around um, the standards that we are applying re retail credit modeling, uh, especially the Basel um, framework and also the um, um, IFRS 9 standards. So um, I come here with uh, some of the solutions that we think uh, we can use the actuarial thinking to mitigate some of the issues that he raised. So we are going to look at uh, three approaches. The first one is exogenous maturity vintage. 
The second one is survival analysis, and the third is threshold regression. I will be referring to um, exogenous maturity vintage model as EMV model going forward. The survival analysis, there is um, a section that speaks to proportional hazards model, so I will uh, refer to it as a pH model, and then TRM for the threshold regression model. The, one of the issues that Musa raised was the use of static variables in modeling. And he mentioned the techniques that are currently being used and that don't allow, they are not flexible enough to allow for time-varying covariates. How can this be resolved by introducing new techniques that are widely used in actuarial science? Um, th that is what I'm going to show in the next few slides. The main thing that he extensively um, spoke about is the calculation of rho. So everywhere in the world, um, if you are holding or, or if you're managing a mortgage portfolio, you need to, to use a row of 15%. If you're managing a um, revolving loan, you will need to hold a row of 4%. And he explained extensively how inapplicable that can be. Over and above that, there is research uh, that show that the row in some instances is too low or the row is too high. So this is designed, the, the, the framework is designed as a one, um, one size fits all. And um, the inapplicability has been also uh, described. So how do we use these approaches that we listed here to use um, portfolio specific fundamentals to come up with the row that is applicable to, um, to the jurisdiction we are working with, and also to the portfolio that we are looking at. So the first one is uh, the EMV model. Uh, so the EMV model uh, decomposed credit risk experience along three dimensions. So the first one is um, age, then cohort, and then period. So in credit risk terms, we can refer to age as maturity, and cohort as vintage, and uh, the period is the exogenous component. So the exogenous component in this case is the one that um, speaks to the macroeconomic environment or it speaks to the economy as a whole, not only economy or, or the, uh, the, the health status of the financial system within an economy. So um, when we use the EMEV model, the typical model um, which is the typical form given here, includes uh, all the three components. And um, one challenge with uh, this model is that um, if you have your age and you have your cohort, you can be able to uh, tell what period it is. If you have the period and cohort, you can be able to tell um, age. So that's, that speaks to multicollinearity. And um, the, this problem leads to um, the problem of identifiability. So what we actually do in this case is instead of use vintage, we can actually replace that with, um, with the behavioral score. So uh, that is one aspect uh, to think about. So in the next slide, um, this is uh, visually uh, shown the components, the three components that I spoke about. So the first one is the behavioral uh, scorecard or the behavioral model. So this can be segmented by uh, risk groups. As you can see that the, um, 
the, the behavior, as the behavioral score increases, the, the, the default risk decreases. And also, uh, default risk decreases with maturity on the top right, um, on the top right curve. So the, the top two, the, the, the top two components, which is the behavioral and the maturity, um, those can be seen as the unsystematic risk components, and uh, those two combined can actually, at every point that you observe them, you can be able to tell the, 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 the behavioral score of an account. You can be able to tell the age of an account as well, so that do not present uncertainty to the capital that should be held. Then the third component is the exogenous component. That is the main aspect that brings uncertainty. That is the main source of uncertainty uh, uh, to the default rate. So what should happen there is you need to seek uh, or you need to fit a model um, using the macroeconomic information. So not only macroeconomic information can look at macro prudential indicators as well. So macro prudential indicators assess the health status of the financial system and macroeconomic um, indicators or factors uh, assess the health status of the economy as a whole. And uh, with that in mind, that is one way to include time varying covariates in modeling. So uh, if you see the bottom, the, the, the bottom right uh, plot, it shows you the, the predicted PD. So this is a combination now of uh, all the three components that we have discussed. So that is uh, the one advantage of using the EMV compared to the um, current methodologies that are being applied in our models. So the exogenous component being one source of uncertainty in, in, in measuring risk, that is the, the basis that we can use to calculate raw or asset correlation coefficient. So the two factors that get into the calculation of raw um, includes the, the volatility within the exogenous component. It also includes the, um, how well you are able to use your macroeconomic indicators, your macroprudential factors into the, the prediction of um, losses and uh, in, into the prediction of the probability of default. And in the next slide, um, you, you see how this comes through. So on the left side here, raw can be estimated using the variability within the exogenous component of the EMV model. And how well you are able to predict comes through the coefficient of determination. So basically what we are doing here, we are using the fund portfolio fundamentals to be able to come up with a raw instead of using the raw that is prescribed by the uh, Basel models, the, the, by the Basel model, which from research we have observed that sometimes it's not an optimal value to use. So um, Musa spoke about point in time um, PD modeling and uh, through the cycle of PD modeling. So when you model the exogenous component, you actually uh, you have an R square, which is greater than zero. So that gives you a point in time model. If you 
omit that component in within an M MEV mo EMV model, then it gives you a through the cycle uh, PD, which we'll see in the next slide. So uh, this compares um, how the, the, the EMV model um, indicates the presence and absence of the exogenous um, component. So on the left side, we have point in time, you can actually see that um, the, the confidence interval is actually lower because by modeling the exogenous component, you are actually reducing um, uncertainty with, within, your, um, within your, your, your exogenous component. And then on the right side, you see that when we omit the exogenous component, the um, confidence, confidence interval is wider. So what we currently do now is we hold uh, capital based on the through the cycle um, on the through the cycle PDs, and you see that um, the advantage of having that is that it's stable over time. Whereas on the left side, um, the, the the PDs or the predicted PDs are very volatile, but both can be produced using the EMV model. The um, attractive feature about the point-in-time modeling is that uh, it allows you, it is that flexibility to uh, incorporate the forecasted information or the forecasted uh, macroeconomic information uh, into the model. And this can be very useful in portfolio management if you have what they call STPs, short-term plans, if you have uh, MTPs, uh, medium-term plans, you can actually um, get triggers from the point-in-time modeling to see, um, to, 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 to incorporate um, what the future holds. So um, when you compare with point-in-time, the only maximum, because point-in-time is backward-looking, so the only ma um, maximum value it can pick up is the maximum point when the worst period occurs or the, the, the down, downturn period occurred in the past and it doesn't have the ability to capture what is likely to happen in the future. The next, um, the, 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 the next um, model we are look, going to look at is the pH model, the proportional hazard model. So it's, it looks very similar to the EMV model we just discussed. It's just that in this case, it um, models survival time until an event happens. So the advantage of using this, the, the main difference between this one and the one that I discussed before is that the first one, the, the EMV model, um, is modeled at a fixed horizon, whereas this one allows for multiple horizons. And uh, the output from this model can actually be used in cases that Musa mentioned where you need to hold uh, lifetime losses. That means you need to uh, predict PDs, lifetime PDs as well. So it allows for multiple horizons. Um, so typically this can be used in, in a situation where you want to identify accounts that have significantly increased in credit risk, and this is applicable in IFRS 9 modeling. So just to put it um, graphically, 
the first blue line is the baseline that we we all know about. So um, when you introduce macroeconomic variable, macroeconomic variables in times where um, the market improves, you find that the curve, the blue curve is adjusted downwards. And then in the worst case scenario, you find that the curve, curve can be adjust, ad adjusted upwards. And uh, over and above that, you can also then include the behavioral, um, the behavioral score, and that shifts the, 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 the final curve to the top one or to the red one, and that is what gets implemented. So this is just showing how time-varying core variables can be incorporated in our modeling. The last model is the threshold regression um, model. That is the technique that is um, that aligns to the modern model model that Musa spoke about. That is that forms the basis of the Vasicek assumption. So we didn't have um, a similar model in 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 consumer credit risk, but this threshold regression model can be. Um, can be the basis for the der derivation of the Vasicek assumption. Uh, so this is this models uh, waiting time until process um, breaches a threshold. So what actually happens is it the, the process seeks to find a threshold where if in the in the in the credit retail credit risk environment where you are dealing with individual or consumer credit. Um, you can think of it as net savings. So if the net savings uh, fall be below a specific threshold, then we identify that particular account as having defaulted. Uh, so an illustration is given uh, in, this, in this plot. So the, the threshold is given at that point. So what this actually does is if you look at the loans that originated almost at the same, um, at the same point in terms of net savings, uh, we track the, we seek to model the drift of each of the customers. So the drift in terms of the tendency to move towards the threshold or the tendency to move away from the threshold. And also we seek to find um, the systemic risk, um, that is the, the, the dependency of these loans on each other um, based on the, um, on the movement in the economy or macroeconomic um, variables. So uh, those are the three processes or three techniques that we thought could be used from actuarial perspective and solve some of the problems presented by Basel, and by, by, by the Basel framework, and also by the um, IFRS 9 standards. Uh, that said, um, the buzzword in the credit um, risk industry has been compliance. And for the past decade, um, Companies have ticked all boxes in compliance with the Basel framework, in compliance with um, IFRS 9 standards. And the next question now is what's next? So I will look at into the future uh, with 
in three dimensions. So the first one is the next thing to do is to refine the models to calibrate to the latest experience. The second dimension is, as we all know, that not all models are perfect. Uh, same is the frameworks. We also have shortcomings, as we have seen, uh, from the frameworks. So just putting work into how we can work to resolve those imperfections. And then the third dimension is, um, is there a way to look different, completely differently from the conventional way of how we've been modeling? And uh, there are cases where you look at the uh, profitability of a business instead of just focusing on, um, on, on defaults. So um, Tabiso is bringing in new ideas is bringing in fresh ideas on how we can shift our mindsets from credit scoring to profit scoring. Thanks, Messi. Evening, everyone. So what I'll be talking about is, is I guess, um, is, is I'm advocating for us to move away from profit scoring to move away from credit scoring to profit scoring, uh, the idea is that we are suboptimal in the way that we are going about the credit granting process. Firstly, I'll start off with a bit of history, uh, how all of this started, um, then the solutions that exist to resolve the problems with, with the first way in which we are doing things, and then, and then some preliminary results on um, how things are looking right now. Firstly, uh, surely um, financial institutions have been around for quite a long time and back in the day the credit granting process used to be actually done by the bank manager or a team of uh, credit analysts who would interview the potential client and then possibly also have an interview with the local priest etc to have an idea of what sort of person you are and that would inform whether credit is granted or not. The problem with that, though, is that it's obviously not easy to scale up. There's only so much that a person can do. Secondly, the, around the 1940s, 1930s, there was a there was a drive to grow the book by, by a lot of the financial institutions. The fact that you have a manual process or a human-dependent process does not help with that at all. Um, and thirdly, around that time, the, there was a world war, and hence a lot of the analysts were actually called in to assist in the war, which further exacerbated the problem. But Fisher came to the rescue with his um, Iris dataset classification work, a statistical piece of work, and some bright minds noticed that you can actually apply that sort of thinking to, to the credit granting process to classify loans as, as good or bad, and hence the birthing of application scoring. And soon after that, it doesn't take much to then get to behavioral scoring, and that is, in a sense, the existing stage of the evolution of the credit granting process. The, the key problem to me with, with, with both application and behavioral scoring from a, from a loan granting perspective is that it makes a very strong assumption that uh, default risk is the key risk. Default risk encompasses your whole behavioral experience, and that is certainly not true. And hence, the move to profit scoring. As I've alluded to before, and uh, I think Michael and Mosa and Messi were talking about this earlier, so a, a fundamental measure of, of, of a loan's of a loan's deterioration is, is called credit loss, and that is essentially a combination of three key variables, PD, EAD, and LGD, whereas 
credit scoring only looks at that first one, PD, completely ignores the other two. And these other two are actually quite fundamental too and they should not be ignored at all, especially from a retail credit perspective where after the point of default, there's actually quite a lot of recoveries that you still make afterwards. Uh, secondly, a lot of accounts that are high risk, if you've, if you've done your pricing from a risk-based perspective, is that a high risk account would attract a higher interest rate and hence some of that you've already built in anyway. Now, profit scoring in essence looks at, is targeting the main thing, the thing that we, are, that we are actually interested in, the actual profit profile that comes about. So and it, with that, if you've decided to adopt a profit scoring approach, it immediately appeals to things like a risk adjusted return, uh, value, uh, value added approaches. So you can easily then see whether the book that you are creating or the accounts that you are booking are actually profitable or not and are adding real value to your, to, your, to your line of business. Once you've made the decision to go about profit scoring instead of credit scoring, you are then faced with this problem of how do you actually view a customer's profitability? The very basic, and, and a lot of banks, some banks have this, is that you would have a contractual level view of a, of a, of a potential client. And what I mean by that is that we are looking at um, the, the profit add on that particular contract that this person is signing or is about to sign. For example, a vehicle, vehicle asset finance. The next level that you should be looking at when you're looking at how profitable a certain customer is, is a product level view. And what that is, is that instead of just looking at one contract, consider that the person can take on multiple contracts. For example, some people like to drive the latest BMW and they keep changing it every three years. So you should be taking that into account in your profit view. Thirdly, um, you could potentially look at a bundled view. And what, what that means essentially is that um, it, it's, it comes about from the way the banks are recently structured and that a business unit could be looking at uh, a, a, a bundled portfolio of products, say a uh, personal loan, a credit card, and an overdraft. And it's therefore very useful to have a view of the profit contribution of that customer to that whole business unit. And the holy grail is a holistic view. And what I mean by this is that across the whole group, how profitable is this person, um, how much profit is this person going to be contributing towards your, towards your book? The task is massive, um, but there are key, key advantages to this. It, obviously, it allows you to better cherry pick your customers to, to better grow your book. Um, and also, quite importantly, it allows you to identify your very key relationships, your very key people, so that you don't upset that relationship and you can continue to extract uh, the, the benefits from that. Surely then, once you have a view, this multidimensional view of, a, of, of your potential customer, you can then make a better both tactical and strategic decisions in terms of your pricing and acquisitions. And this is essentially what I'm advocating for. The, the problem of profit scoring has received some attention, um, increasing attention definitely from the academic space, um, and the results have been absolutely amazing. Um, in almost all of the papers that I've read, uh, there has been a significant improvement in your in the profit of your, your particular book where you've actually ring-fenced or you've used this particular uh, profit scoring techniques as opposed to uh, credit scoring. 
the the other thing that I mean, I guess this is natural uh, given the the age that we and some authors have actually also started to apply uh, m machine learning uh, data science techniques, and naturally that that also um, increases the, the 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 profit of of your book um, if you, if you look, if you apply these things. With that said, the the task is massive. Firstly, what we have is a a couple of key problems. Firstly, what we have is uh, we have a data challenge, and that, this is mostly coming from the way some of these businesses have, have come about. For example, it might be very difficult to, to, to have access to data from different business units that totally operate independently. And secondly, it, it's also quite difficult to see if we are looking at the same person in your, say, your life uh, your life function versus your retail banking function. Uh, but this has received quite a lot of attention uh, in the banking space to, to, to merge the, 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 what they usually say is uh, a holistic view of, a data holistic view of the person. A lot of banks have, have um, invested in that. The, the other issue is that you, you have price and profit. So surely your price influences how much profit you get. And if you do risk-based pricing, your profit influences your price. You have a bit of a chicken and egg situation happening, but there are ways around that, and we can have a discussion about that um, later if you want. Um, the other quite key thing is that what we're actually asking of these models is a lot. Um, firstly, you're, you're asking for it to firstly have to model the whole lifetime of, of the human being, of the potential customer, as well as accessing the, behavior, the behavioral access across the different products, as, as well as the different pricing decisions that happen along the way. So there's incredibly high model risk that comes about that, so um, it's, it's a big ask. So these ideas that I'm talking, that I'm talking about right now, I'm actually busy uh, applying them on uh, one of our, our local bank's retail book, and I'm hoping um, sometime next year we can, something cool comes out of it, and then maybe we can share it here. Um, yes, that's, uh, that's about it. Um, I'm going to ask Mosa to come and wrap this all up and give us concluding remarks. Right, uh, so from my side, just to maybe wrap up, the, I think the, the key thing we've, we've seen, I mean, we've, I've been doing research in this area for, for a bit of a while, and our sense is that, you know, I mean, to use a biblical phrase here, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. There aren't enough people doing research in this area. And there's actually a lot to solve, right? So um, I just wanted to highlight a few of these, just things we've, we've, um, we've, we've I guess, uh, seen, but not, not had enough time to think about. Uh, so the first one is in, uh, economic value. So embedded value for banks, basically, if you, if you think about it. Um, I'm not going to spend that much time on this because there's a paper in the, I think, the SA Actuary uh, magazine, this. Uh, but, but basically, it's possible. And it's in, invaluable, not just from a financial analysis perspective, but also from... So if, for example, a bank has written... 10% or has grown its loan book by 10%, how much shareholder value has it created in doing that? That's actually a question we can answer, and insurers already answer that through embedded value. So I think uh, there's a bit of work to be done there. Um, and obviously, I think the, the, what I call the deadly assumptions, uh, I think one is that they are deadly because uh, people don't understand them in, in the first instance. And I think from a technical perspective, there isn't... Um, 
uh, enough solutions to them. Uh, we are tr we've tried to, to come up with a, with a few, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. I think the other key things is development finance. I think how it feeds into into this whole picture. Cross-portfolio aggregation, I think it's key uh, because people are segmenting portfolios and calculating uh, capital on a fractional basis and assuming it aggregates, which it doesn't. Um, and unification, that's both within credit risk and across risk types. Uh, and I'm not just talking about using copulas and fancy techniques to aggregate risks, but also fundamentally modeling uh, these risks as being interrelated because they are. Right? Uh, so I think that's basically what we had for you guys. Thanks. Okay, so I think we've got about 10 minutes for questions. If that didn't jog your mind a little bit, maybe you weren't awake. Uh, sorry, so just a question on um, the profit scoring, because that was really cool stuff. Um, you look at contract product bundle holistics, that's still on a single person level. Is optimizing profit on a group of individuals the same as optimizing on the portfolio? So why isn't there one more view above that? Cool. Uh, thanks, guys, for such a great presentation. Um, I think my question is around one of the assumptions that you, one of your deadly assumption, and that assumption is that you assume that N is infinitely large, um, and and you say that that's a deadly assumption. But if you look at um, modeling in general, it requires that you've got um, a large sample. And when you increase your sample to about, I think, 500 or something like that, you, you actually got the results that, that, that make sense, if I recall from your presentation. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is, um, so, so the problem is not um, uh, that this assumption is necessarily wrong. Um, it, but when you when you when you when you're modeling, you always need that um, um, uh, a large uh, sample to be able to get like a, a proper result. I, is that a fair statement to make regarding one of your assumptions? So, look, I think it's fair, but the problem is, I mean, even at, like at five percent, if you're holding capital at five percent, as you would here, it's I mean the probability that you reach your capital levels are still quite high, and I mean obviously that's an example. But the point is, even if you are twenty five percent, but this thing, but the distribution is actually wider because of fundamental. Like I said, if the fundamental probability of default within that portfolio is lower, it's very easy to breach that level. So the point here is that I mean completely fair, but one needs to firstly understand these risks and how they apply to the portfolio, right? And um, and uh, hopefully solve them through pillar two modeling and so on. So it's just simply, we need to understand what we are modeling, not just make the presumption that it all works together uh, nicely. Just maybe just lastly on that, given that, I mean, you are applying this on retail and in retail, I mean, you generally have quite a large number of customers, like over a million. Wouldn't also you say, um, compared to corporate, um, the, the retail segment, you can make that assumption of infinitely large because you've, you really you don't even have 25,000 customers, you've got millions of customers in a retail bank. 
Yeah, so completely right, but you can't, you actually can't make that assumption. And the, the reason why is because of how it's applied. So in order for that assumption to work, you also, because it's not just one assumption, it's that plus homogeneity, right? You then have to go and segment your portfolio into different portfolios and within each portfolio you have a risk group. And the point is that not, the model doesn't apply to any of them because none of them are infinite, right? So it's, uh, and the point is when, when the study is done in practice, we find, or we often find that the capital levels are actually insufficient because of these assumptions. Thank you. Okay, just off of that, um, I guess the size of the book, and it's a discussion that's been going on for some time is, so we're lucky in South Africa that there's a big population, it's mostly banked, but in a lot of the um, less developed countries, I'll call them that, or more emerging um, countries that aren't as highly banked and or have smaller populations that are in banked with formal banks at least sort of and I guess it's not really a question but you know something to think about what is the applicability of the whole Basel framework in some of these countries are we just not putting a very unnecessary regulatory burden or a very inappropriate regulatory burden on countries that one don't have the resources to comply anyway and two where these models actually don't make sense because they just don't meet any of the the qualifying assumptions. All right. Um, is there another question? Okay. Have you back tested and found that um, there were cases where uh, actually insufficient capital was held? Uh, yes. For example, well, where. So, so in the instance, so I've looked at about three different portfolios myself. Generally, they were overcapitalized. That's purely because I was thinking, I always generally think about capital at the point of time. So for where they were on the cycle, they didn't need to hold as much capital as they were holding. Now, when you think about it in, in broader terms, in other words, through the entire economic cycle, will they ever, if they follow this regime, will they ever reach a point where they might be undercapitalized. Yes, And the point here is that the so if you think about the asset correlation coefficient for mortgages, which is fifteen percent everywhere, I mean it's almost certainly going to, to be wrong, right? I mean you can't assume that a bank in you know in the US, United States and a bank in Europe is similar to a bank in Kenya, right? So very because the fundamentals of it that that's what can actually model the ethical from the fundamentals and, and understand what drives So that's basically what. So there is, I mean, and no, no coincidence that there was a banking crisis in Kenya. Um, I have a question, I guess, for those who work in the larger banks and insurance companies, because, well, you use the term profit scoring, and I guess I come from first round where we tend to talk about customer lifetime value, and it's really more or less the same concept, um, and a lot of the challenges very similar um, in the first round world. How do you get all the data in the same place? How do you access it? Which tools are we using? Is it even complete? Is it appropriate? Um, and I guess my question, and I, I guess to the um, to the to the points that you made of then how do you look, how do you optimize all of that? We talk about portfolio optimization quite a lot. And I guess my question to the people in the room is what are, well, firstly, do you see it in other banks aside from, I guess, ABSA and First Rand? Um, but 
firstly, do you do you take the same approach? Have you been taking it? Or is this something that's sort of on your journey um, of doing your work better? And secondly, what are the key challenges that haven't been mentioned that you've faced in your organizations? Any takers? Or is this brand new information? <laughs> Old Mutual? No, there are a few people from Old Mutual in here. Or the consultants in the room, because you see quite a few businesses. Is portfolio optimization and customer lifetime value a thing? Yes, it is It is a thing. Um, we, we, we do look at the, the value of, of, of business we're going to get from a customer at, at, at pricing stage, for example. Um, but I think at, at at ongoing business stage, I think there's still a bit more work to do. Yeah. Munich Re? <laughs> we would look at um, a probability of of the of the customers renewing their their uh, treaties, and in, in and and in doing so, trying to work out what the what the EV is of the of the portfolio. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's quite interesting. Hi, um, I'm Annika from FNB. So, I mean, in payment modeling isn't kind of my field. I'm in collections analytics, um, and I have some experience in scoring as well, uh, application scoring. So, I think the profit scoring one was really interesting to me. Um, and my question is just, am I right in saying that what that helps us do is write business that would maybe in some at some point default but would still be profitable to the business i think the the difficulty there is just that you don't have to now predict the the default event but also the severity of the default right because exactly if you get someone that goes goes into def default and just kind of continues you know after that and gets written off um that customer in my mind, would still would would still under the the current application scoring, you know, you'd, you'd get the same result. But the the added complexity there is trying to predict the severity of the arrears or the severity of the default, uh, which is difficult in my mind, right? I'm just curious how you can get the data to even do this because banks data is horrible um, you know I've seen a lot of the data in all the various banks and they they hardly can get a customer centric view let alone an account level view with linking various systems that produce various bits of information so how do you propose banks to start thinking about this so I, I think a lot of banks are starting to get a better one view of the customer. That's really starting to happen. Um, but I'm at an advantage where I have a view of all the retail customers that I'm not sure how it looks like in the other banks, but we have quite a good, quite a good view of our, our retail customers um, across all the different products, actually. In a retail bank, only. 
yeah i was gonna say like within i can think within fmb the credit guys will typically have access to the consumer and but then once you're talking home loans and you know once you're talking west bank and what's happening at ashburton of which i think the biggest thing is the commitment of resources and money because those are like expensive most of the big banks are sitting on legacy systems unless like you're a fintech a fintech or a bank zero it's like unbundling the as is world that makes us money to yeah so i think it's it's the com- i think there's a lot of political will required to cause that much havoc because of the legacy system so it's mainly an it thing that's my honest view from what i saw in first strand that yeah it's it's people it's people it's a political will it's an investment of human resources you literally it's like how when there's new regulation you actually just need to hire completely new people to do that work yeah there <laughs> um so i think within banks for to be able to get to this point where you've got one view of the customer and the you can actually use the data for something and it's complete and we can use the same software to analyze it and all that there's going to be a massive investment of capital in people and in systems and that requires it's like a whole new industry within the bank um so yeah i i saw this the struggle but we don't mm-hmm. just that bank a bank that doesn't do that today won't probably exist in 20 to 30 years. So, yeah. No, exactly. So, so I think uh, that investment is definitely necessary for the future. And I think also with open banking, it's, it's going to become a requirement. So people talk about open banking in the UK a lot, but don't realize that it's actually in the minds of our regulator already here. So if you enter an open banking world, you can't sit on just really bad data because you need to comply with an industry standard. So you need to make the investment now to, and not just the investment to have a complete view within your organization, but an investment in a system that's agile to enter an open banking world. So I think that's a view that the banks aren't taking yet to say that you might actually need to reinvest if you're not doing things in an agile manner or creating very dynamic systems now because the open banking world, it's not even 10 years away. Within, I think, the next five years, the regulator will be asking banks to make their data um, available in an open space. I think the, the data also needs to extend not just to, to revenue but to cost data. So one of the key problems we're having is we finally got all our revenue data together. This is Investec. We've got a propensity model that we've built now for like the expected path we expect customers to take in terms of cross-sell and your uptake of products. But we can't tell who's a high-cost customer and calling us, you know, their private private banker 10 times a week versus who's doing it once a year. So you need the costs as well and activity-based costing. So it just gets bigger and bigger the more you try and do. Just seeking some information. Um, are there banks who have come up with their, um, with their own way of... Um, um, determining their capital uh, in addition to Basel too. I'm thinking of this um, with solvency too, you know you can come up with your own risk and solvency assessment in addition to what the regulator wants, such that they can apply such techniques in determining their coefficients and such like things. So it's an additional space for actuaries to, to, to delve into. So we've run out of time. If you guys do have questions, please reach out to our presenters. Um, I think we'll be hearing more from them uh, on global audiences. And it would be nice if the guys from BCBS heard what you have to say (laughs) and your recommendations as well and the good work you're doing. And yeah, please just join me in thanking them very much for all the great work that they're doing.